welcome to episode 79 of Yukon 360. That, of course, is the only podcast known to science that covers the University of Connecticut from every conceivable angle. My name is Tom Breen. I'm your facilitator of sorts, coming to you from, well, not actually the University of Connecticut, but, you know, a few miles west of there, because we are working remotely. And uh, joining me, as always, are my colleagues, Tyler Silverio. Tyler, how are you doing? I'm good. How's it going? It's going all right. Julie Bartuka, how are you? Did I shame you into stopping your Four Corners uh, analogy there? I want to change it up, but <laughs> as listeners of the podcast know, I am shameless. Yes, very true. And Ken Best, Ken, how are you? I'm good, but I'm wondering if we're going to have another change of name for Tom's History Corner, which we've been promised for now almost three years. I think we stopped promising that a long time ago. We gave up. Yeah, empty promises. from the. You know. <laughs> That's what you can expect here at UConn 360. Well, we've got a, a good program for you, as always, this week. And uh, we're going to talk about some exciting things happening at UConn. And, and in fact, why don't we start off by doing that? Why don't we talk about some UConn news items? Ken, what's the latest? Well, one of UConn's top scientific researchers was named to a newly endowed chair. Professor Mark Urban recently was named the first Arden Chair of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. This position is one of two endowed chairs established last year with a $3 million anonymous gift to the department. Professor Urban has been at UConn since 2008, and he focuses on predator-prey impacts on evolution. His work has advocated for the inclusion of ecological and evolutionary data in climate change models that would more accurately predict the impact of climate change on long-term species survival. His studies have shown that one in six species on Earth will be extinct by the year 2100. His editorial last year in Science Magazine calls on scientists to help protect the world against even more rapid extinctions by urging political action to preserve the Arctic. Recently, Professor Urban was named one of the most highly cited researchers worldwide by the Web of Science Index, which is a list that includes researchers who publish studies ranking in the top 1% by citations for their field and year of publication. So that's pretty neat. Very nice. Yeah, he does very impressive work, um, and you can read all about it at uh, UConn today. I have similar uh, congratulations to a couple of CLAS professors, and I very much apologize for mispronouncing your names, but Ovidu Montano, an associate professor of mathematics, and Yuen Gu, assistant professor of statistics, are the first two Makuch faculty fellows for 2021 to 2023. This award in mathematical and data sciences provides $9,000 each for faculty in the college in the departments of mathematics or statistics to use for their research. It honors faculty who demonstrate significant contributions to the fields of math or data science and whose work has a significant impact on students. Gu works with big data and Montanu works in differential geometry. And these awards were made possible by Robert McCutch, 1972 grad, who is a professor of biostatistics at Yale. Very nice. Congratulations to the uh, the first honorees, or recipients, I think. Yeah. Honored recipients. Why don't we go with that? <laughs> well, you know, uh, we, we, we research a lot of interesting things here at UConn, from big data to, uh, to maybe the, the problems of everyday life. One of those problems I think we can all recognize is fubbing. Careful. I said fubbing. <laughs> if, if this is not a term you've heard before, uh, you're definitely aware of what this term describes. Ken... Why don't you tell us a little bit more about what it means to be fub? I'm sorry. I was just checking on my phone. I'm sorry. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. So good. 
And that's what we're going to be talking about. Ryan J. Alred completed his doctoral dissertation in communication studies last spring by examining how the presence of a cell phone causes individuals to feel snubbed by their conversation partners, like we've been doing here. This phenomenon is termed fubbing or phone snubbing. His dissertation, and get ready for this, the title is Cell Phone Presence, Fubbing, and Rejection, Antecedents and Effects of Cell Phone Usage During Face-to-Face Communication. That's a very highfalutin academic approach to ignoring people because you're working on your phone. Professor Ored is now an assistant professor of communication at the University of Wisconsin Oshkosh, and uh, we checked in via Zoom about his research, and I started our conversation by asking him what attracted him to this subject. My research focuses on communication inhibitions, things that stop people from communicating when they want to. And I just see all the time in social interactions where somebody is trying to communicate something and they're just not able to because a cell phone is being used inappropriately. Um, It sort of has gotten to where pulling out a phone is equivalent to turning your back on someone during a conversation. And I don't think people intend it to be that way. I just think we don't often consider what we're doing with our cell phones. And so that got me thinking, how could we learn how to use technology appropriately so that it can help us improve our relationships rather than inhibiting our communication? And you you have looked at the two of the most critical types of relationships, parent-child relationships and romantic relationships, which scream social media (laughs) immediately. Why did you decide on those specifics? And what are the underlying theories that you're using to examine? Because, no, there's two very significant ones. The main purpose for choosing those populations is technology is still rather new. Even though we've had cell phones now for quite a while, we haven't had them for anybody's entire lifespan. So it's hard to understand how they're really affecting us long term if we look at just one population. So my most recent study, we decided to look at both parent-child and romantic relationships. So that way we can get a picture of how this is going to affect us 20, 30 years from now. If we can see how children are affected now and how adults are affected now, it can help us to understand a bigger picture of how this is all gonna work together. So I used a couple of big theories. One of them, interpersonal acceptance and rejection theory by Dr. Rohner at the University of Connecticut. A really cool theory that talks about how our interactions with our parents help us to develop a sense of identity that leads us to either feel confident in our future relationships or afraid in our future relationships. So the big term there that I connected to was rejection sensitivity. The idea that individuals develop this sort of need to look for signs of rejection. So even when other people are not rejecting them in social settings, they are looking at things and thinking that other people are rejecting them. And that occurs or is developed because they didn't have positive relationships with their primary caregivers as children. So I really wanted to look at how parents who use their phones while they're around their children cause their children to develop this rejection sensitivity or this feeling of being constantly rejected, even when those around them are not trying to reject them. Second big thing I look at there is immediacy. In face-to-face conversations, uh, we have nonverbal signals that we do to show people that we're interested, that we're engaged. So that would be our eye contact, our head nods, and those things are really disrupted by having a phone present to the point where having a phone is basically like having a third limb and we're bringing it into our nonverbals and it's disrupting our ability to have these other cues. I myself take my phone out of my pocket and leave it on the table just so in case it, it rings 
because I'm sometimes on call for information, it's going to be there. But otherwise, I try not to look at it. Yet, I sometimes I'm sitting with people that are just constantly looking at their phones. How does that start to play out in what you found? Our original studies actually looked at what we called the mere presence hypothesis, the idea that merely having a phone visible was negative for conversations. And we're actually seeing that that effect is going away. People are just so used to having phones out now that it's not really having that negative effect it once was. Perhaps because we realize that we all do it and therefore we don't judge other people when they do it to us. Where it becomes problematic though is when our attention is drawn to the phone. So as soon as our conversation partners recognize that our attention is no longer on them, but our attention is on this device, which represents other people. In other words, our attention is on other people. Then it starts to hurt conversations. So we're finding that having your phone out, not really a huge deal, but once you're putting the attention on it, then it becomes problematic. Now, on, uh, to extend that on the second part, on the relationships, romantic relationships, what was your fa- finding there based on the other information that you looked at? We are seeing that cell phones, our, our addiction to our phones is taking up a portion of our cognitive capacity. So it's, it's sort of like our names. Our names are super important, right? So we have assigned a portion of our brain to constantly be listening for our names. So that's why you can be talking to somebody and somebody across the room can say your name and you hear it because your brain is listening for it. The same thing's happening with our phones. We've assigned a portion of our brain to constantly be listening for our phones. And what that does is it takes away our ability to pay attention to our current conversations. And it's manifest through our nonverbals. So it's manifest through disengaging nonverbally with our conversation partners. So even when we are trying to pay attention, even when we think that we're engaged in the conversation, but we're scrolling through Facebook, it's inhibiting these psychological connections that we could be making with the other person that enhance our ability to make connections. Communication is not about saying the right thing all the time and always being perfect in how you say things. Communication is about connection with other people. And when you add this other variable that's inhibiting that connection, it really hurts your communication. So our big finding there was that having your phone out made your conversation partner less satisfied with your conversations because they weren't seeing the nonverbals that that we tend to look for in close conversations. What surprised you about the research, if anything? Because you always think you're going to answer the question fully, but it doesn't always work out that way in the research. I think the biggest thing that surprised me is how much we have adapted as a society. This was my fourth study on this topic, and we are seeing that the, the findings are changing over time because as society we're adapting. And I think that that is a good sign, is that we're learning to use technology uh, better and better. For example, with the mere presence stuff, we are learning to maybe recognize that people are not intending to hurt us, that they just have other things that, that are important to them. Uh, and so I think that surprised me because in my life, when someone fubs me, I, I get offended by it. I don't like it. Uh, but we're seeing that children or, or younger people are reframing what it means to have technology. And although I, don't, I still think it's harmful for them right now, to me, that's a hopeful sign because it shows that they're willing to engage in it, engage with the technology, engage, engage with the theories, and figure out a healthy way to move forward. What's the question that you 
would like people to ask you that you don't get about this subject? I think the biggest question is, what can I do individually? When I get into those conversations, those are the conversations that I really enjoy. And that's a hard one for a researcher to answer because it is personal. You need to uh, have your own guidelines for how you approach this. So for example, for me, in order to improve my relationships, I take off everything that is an entertainment factor away from my phone. I don't want to be thinking when I'm bored, I need to go to my phone. Or when, I, when I'm nervous, I need to go to, to my phone. So I take away all the apps that are entertainment based. So that way, when I'm in social settings with other people and I get bored, my tendency is not to go to my phone. My tendency is to find something else around me that can enhance the conversation. Uh, and so I, th I think that's a cool, cool question to ask because if I asked you that question, you'd probably have techniques that you do to help you use technology in a healthy way. And I think that's really what gets us pushing into the next level. How are you using it? How am I using it? How can we create this pathway forward with technology? Well, now we all know what we're supposed to do when the phone is out and it, it rings, or maybe it shouldn't be out, so that it can't ring and you can pay attention to your conversation partner. I think that's what we should be doing. He's going to continue to work on this subject because, as he said during our discussion, he's done several studies already. This is the most recent one with looking at these relationships and the significance of the cell phone and how really some people have adapted, but you know, some of us are still chasing people from the lawn. I did find it interesting that we as a society seem to have, I don't know if he said this in uh, this interview, but at least in your written piece on it, um, we seem to be more okay now if the phone is there on the table while we're having a meal or something with someone, but it's just the actual looking at and ignoring your, your partner or conversation partner for the phone. That's the problem. The, We're evolving. As you said, there's more. Uh, if you go to the UConn Today website, we have uh, a, a more detailed Q&A. Uh, essentially the same information, but a lot more expansive. Julie, what, yes. uh, what do you have for us this week? Oh, I talked to Nate Okpich, who is an assistant professor in the School of Social Work. He recently published a book called Climbing a Broken Ladder, Contributors of College Success for Youth in Foster Care. And I learned when reading a little bit about his book and his findings that fewer than one in 10 foster youth end up completing a two or four year college degree. So his book talks about what can be done to support foster youth in pursuing college uh, success. And I asked him what factors are behind that statistic. First, there is a step of going to college in the first place. And then the second step is persisting through college and then ultimately graduating. And so a study found that some of the factors that decreased our likelihood of going to college were things like academic preparedness in, in high school, issues with mobility while they're in foster care, the number of foster care placements they were in. And then interestingly, once youth are in college, when we're looking at their chances of ultimately graduating and earning a degree, I found that youth who are parents, youth that had to work extra hours to pay for their bills, and then just that number of economic hardships that youth faced in, in college. So a lot of these real world difficulties are things that drove down their likelihood of persisting and ultimately earning a degree. If I remember correctly, about half of the youth in the study ever set foot inside of a college classroom. And among those who entered college, less than a quarter ultimately earned uh, a college degree. And it was split about evenly between a two-year degree and a four-year degree. So overall, if we're just taking a step back, 
and comparing foster youth to, to youth that didn't have foster care histories. Youth in foster care are about one-fifth or one-sixth as likely to earn a college degree by their mid-20s. Wow. And obviously, there's a lot of different things that come into play and a lot of ways to tackle that. What were some of the recommendations that you made? I know there's some policies that could be changed, some maybe support at colleges, and then even on the individual level. What are some of the things that can be done to address this issue? When we're looking at uh, the step of getting into college, one of, one of the issues is just the amount of instability that youth experience switching from one placement to another. A lot of times when you switch from one foster care home to another home or another type of placement, some youth also have to change schools, change communities. It's a huge disruption in the social connections. You know, you might be in a high school class in one school, takes two to three weeks to get set up in the next school, and that school doesn't offer that class. So those credits are lost. That's one of the major target areas is just decreasing the disruption to foster youth educational experiences when they have to switch placements. For many foster youth, they may not have had family members or community members that have gone to college. So college really is it's kind of an abstract thing. It's something that a lot of them are, are told to do. A lot of them say that they want to do. You know, over 80% want to go to college. But in terms of having people accessible to them who can help them with the very concrete steps of preparing for college, many foster youth don't have a really robust uh, network. So one of the recommendations is to make some transformations to the child welfare department. There's a lot of ways that you can do this, such as contracting with agencies that specialize in college advising. Child welfare departments can also develop kind of an in-house, especially having a child welfare worker who specializes in assisting youth who want to go to college to, to prepare for college, completing financial aid applications, getting all their ducks in a row academically, searching for colleges, not just applying to colleges that are close and familiar, but colleges where they might actually have a better chance of really succeeding and persisting. And then when we're talking about once you are in college, helping them persist, the one thing is just meeting the financial needs of youth in foster care. Two of the main findings that I mentioned before is that drivers of foster youth leaving college were youth that had to work extra jobs and also youth who ran into economic difficulties. So there are many policies out there that provide money for foster youth to help out with college. Some are generally available like Pell Grants, some are specific to foster youth, making sure that youth know about these resources and are getting the resources that they qualify for. That's a huge thing. And another thing just is, is the academics. Because of the educational disruptions that youth experienced also, some youth may have not gone to the schools that were college preparatory schools and secondary school. So linking them to supports on campuses that will ensure that they're academically ready to do well in their classes. One of the really big findings in the study was that of all of the youth that entered college, about half of them didn't make it through their first year. Wow. They left college and never returned. So that f- first year is critical. Kind of all hands on deck. What it takes to succeed in college is a whole different ballgame than what may have worked in high school, getting them acclimated to succeed academically, making sure that there are financial resources, and then also meeting some of the other needs that are probably higher prevalence for foster youth. The results of the impact of trauma that they've experienced in the past, making sure that they have links to consistent mental health services that are trauma-informed and help to address the trauma. It's interesting. I'm thinking as you talk about all these supports, there's so many populations that we think about, but... I don't know that we necessarily, from a college administrator level, think about this foster youth population. Do you know how big a percentage of all college students are foster youth? We don't have great national data. I think we're working on that. It's a small percentage. So this is kind of a small population. 
and some of the other underrepresented students, students that have significant barriers. There's a lot of overlap mm -hmm. with young people in foster care. You know, one of the differences is that youth in foster care experienced some type of maltreatment that was severe enough that they were removed from their families. And on average, the youth in this study, they moved around to five or six different placements while they were in foster care, bouncing around from one placement to another, having those ties severed. And the lasting effect of that trauma and the lasting effect of that instability, it carries over and, and it comes into play when they're in college. A lot of students have family members they can turn to and fall back on for practical things, but also just for emotional support. They're having a really tough time having someone that can pick up the phone and call. For youth in foster care, that may not necessarily be the case. Right now in about 20 states, once youth hit their 18th birthday, foster care ends. They're pretty much on their own. In about 30 states, the age limit is, is 21. But again, once youth hit their 21st birthday, the state child welfare agency, foster care agency does not have a responsibility to, to provide them with housing, to provide the usual supports that a parent would help out with. Yeah, imagine that on your 21st birthday, it's a very abrupt transition where all of a sudden you, you may find yourself homeless or just not really sure what to do and just out of a lot of resources. And you know, in some, some conversations I've had with youth in foster care in college, I remember one who was, you would say a success story. She transferred to community college soon after finishing high school, was doing great, was 20 years old in her last semester of college. And instead of thinking about graduation, she was thinking about where she was going to live the month after she get age 21. And this, again, this was in the last semester of college. And she was she was thinking, do I have to drop out of college just so I can earn enough money to pay rent? So there are some very real challenges and real struggles that youth in care are facing. And, I, you know, COVID has, has intensified that. Are there certain things that address that that you're looking to maybe advocate for on a national level? I'd say one step would be extended foster care. There was a law that was passed in 2008 and then came into effect in 2010 that basically gave states the option to extend the foster care age limit from 18 to 21. And the federal government would subsidize that. As I mentioned before, about three in five states have federally approved laws, but two in five don't. So I think one step is for, for those states too, to sign on to extend their foster care. I think we also need to think about the, the age limit of 21. Realistically, it's age 21 uh, a time when we think youth are ready to be on their own and are set and prepared. Usually, again, with students who are academically successful in college, that's right in the middle of their college career. Another one has to do with another type of grant specifically for youth in foster care. It's called an education and training voucher. It's been around for about 20 years. 2002, the amount that foster youth can receive per year to help out with college expenses, $5,000. Fast forward 20 years, the amount that foster youth can receive to help out with college, $5,000. <laughs> Cost of college has skyrocketed. Mm -hmm. That has not kept pace with inflation. So I think another suggestion would be to change the law so that this education and training voucher keeps pace with the rising cost of college and just inflation in general, kind of like how Pell Grants are adjusted. And then the third thing is we've been seeing in the past 20 years, especially the last 10 years, just a flurry of college campuses that have developed support programs specifically designed for youth in foster care. Some also serve other vulnerable populations, such as homeless youth. Uh, they're called campus support programs. Well over 200 campuses around uh, the U.S. have these programs. And there's a lot of variation in them. 
in terms of what supports they provide. A lot of them provide one-on-one advising and counseling, linking to services. Some provide emergency funds, such as book funds and, and so forth. But one of the problems is that most of these programs are not funded by public dollars. They're funded by a cobbling of private dollars, maybe some public dollars. So their sustainability from year to year is in question. Having a, a steady stream of stable funding that from the federal government that would help to establish these programs at campuses where foster youth commonly attend. How did you come to study this and where did your interest come from in, in this issue? I started out with a master's degree in clinical psychology and I worked in a, a few different positions as a mental health therapist in a high school, in a residential treatment center, in a wraparound program that served young people with mental health illnesses that were also involved in a, the criminal justice system. And through my work in that, some of the youth that I came in contact with were in foster care or they were formerly in foster care. That professional experience really put me in touch with the trauma and the difficulties that many of these youth encounter. But these young people, one of the things that amazed me is just, just how strong and how resilient they are. Some of these youth have gone through more trouble than adults have experienced in their whole life, but they're still there. They're still fighting. And then ultimately, I returned for a master's in social work degree. While I was there, I worked in higher education as a building director at Rutgers University for three years, and then had a few other experiences in education as a middle school teacher, as an SAT instructor for Upward Bound. Those two threads of my professional experience just kind of dovetailed together. And once I was in my MSW program, I started reading studies that focused on higher education for foster youth. And the statistics just astounded me. And I just thought we can do better. These youth deserve better. We can do better. So that's really what kind of drove me into a PhD program and then eventually into this line of research. Uh, very interesting stuff. Thank you for doing that. That's important. I think not just for our students, but for, uh, for everybody in the Yukon community to know about. Yeah. Now we'll turn to the, uh, the still named Tom's History Corner. <laughs> and this was inspired by a request I got. Someone asked me to look into the history of free speech disputes at Yukon. Not for the podcast, but for something else. And as I was doing it, I thought to myself, yeah, you know, this would make a pretty good history corner. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to choose the free speech incident that is remote enough that it won't make anyone angry today. <laughs> That's what you think. Careful. That's what you think. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> so we're going back to 1935, okay. where presumably everyone who was involved on campus has now joined the choir invisible, as they say. And this is a pretty interesting story. And actually, this got a lot of national attention for UConn at a time when it was still known as Connecticut State College. The generation that came of age after World War I, uh, perhaps not surprisingly, was very, had very negative attitudes towards war and militarism. Uh, there was a big movement towards pacifism in the early 1930s, uh, and it was particularly strong on American college campuses. And in April of 1935, there was a, what was called a nationwide student strike against war, where students on campuses all around the country demonstrated against militarism and, and the idea of war. There was no war the U.S. was involved in, but they were just sort of wanted to register their displeasure with going to any war because, of course, things in Europe were starting to heat up by 1935. This did not sit well with the Board of Trustees at then Connecticut State College. And so they hastily passed a new rule which prohibited students and faculty from discussing in any capacity the military or war. What? And on pain of expulsion for students or dismissal for faculty members. Discussing in any capacity. In any capacity. You just couldn't like bring it up. in your dorm room. Can't talk about it. It's basically, yeah. This seems like an egregious violation of... The old First Amendment. Yeah. 
So uh, this became kind of a cause celeb among students, not just in at UConn, but around the country. And uh, also some uh, prominent names like John Dewey, the famous educator, uh, Reinhold Niebuhr, the famous theologian and, and, and activist. He wrote a letter to uh, Connecticut Governor Wilbur Cross at the time, which said, that, quote, I have never seen such a grave violation of the freedom of speech or academic freedom in my life. Um, and Wilbur Cross, his credit, had no idea this was happening. He was kind of blindsided by all this. I was going to say, there's, there's no, no discussion from the legislature about this at all? Anything? No, the trustees just went ahead and did this. How many members on the board of trustees were in favor of this? I don't know what the vote was at the time. That's pretty uh, wild. So there was what was called a day of protest at UConn where students from 26 universities around the Northeast all came to first the state capitol to present a petition to the governor and then to UConn to protest. Mm. And they included some uh, names who would later become prominent. James Wexler was a student at Columbia who became later uh, a famous journalist who stood up to Joe McCarthy and was the editor of the New York Post for a long time, back in the, the, the days when it was known as a very liberal newspaper. And also John Bingham, who was the, the son of uh, U.S. Senator Hiram Bingham from Connecticut and who later founded a political party. So it was an interesting... Uh, uh, gathering. And the board of trustees uh, said, no, we're not going to do anything. And the, the protest got so heated that the leader of the UConn students, there was a club on campus, which is a great name for a club. And I think they should bring it back. It was the Social Problems Club. <laughs> uh, they were very much against the, what was called the gag rule. And the leader of the Social Problems Club was thrown into Mirror Lake by uh, counter uh, protesters. What? And, and further uh, roughhousing was averted only by the intervention of the minister of Doris Congregational Church, who stood between the two groups and said, everyone calm down. Wow. So the board of trustees said, we're not going to change this rule. If you talk about the military, you're gone. The only thing that changed it was, at this time, UConn was in the process of trying to hire a new president. Their previous two presidents had left abruptly, and so they were having difficulty bringing someone a new in. And it was a, uh, a young Albert Jorgensen, who was the finalist, and he said that on condition, he would only accept the job if they got rid of the gag rule and kind of had the board of trustees over a barrel. So they, they wow. scrapped the gag rule. How long was the gag rule in place? Months. Not long at all. Yeah. That's too long, I will say. Too, well, it is. Yeah. Goodness. Yeah. And like, who is enforcing this? Like, really? I mean. Right. It was really just an excuse. If, come if on. someone, if there was a protest on campus, they could just expel everybody, you know. <sighs> But then, then they ended up, I mean, then they ended up protesting the rule itself. So it's like, exactly. what are you really trying to accomplish here? Oh, my goodness. Wow. Yeah. We didn't make perfect decisions all along the way. This activity <laughs> of people being thrown into the, the water and other stuff had nothing to do with the, the dinner that we talked about a couple of weeks ago? This was not a fun dunking. This was, a... <laughs> this was aggression. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Wow. I should also say, in fairness, the faculty was, was pretty much unanimously opposed to this and, and strongly protested as well. And also, they were joined by faculty members from Yale, from MIT, from Wesleyan, from Smith, from a lot of different colleges who sent letters of protest. So pretty much no one thought this was a good idea except for the Board of Trustees. I'd love to know the makeup of the Board of Trustees and like what these people did and what types of, you know, how they were employed. It'd be funny if they were all arms manufacturers. <laughs> But I don't think they were. I think they were a lot of political appointees back then. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. You do such a good service here, Tom. <laughs> you really bring us such knowledge. Thanks. That was the uh, that was the most recent one I could uh, think that someone, you know, without someone listening to this and then, you know, uh, sending us angry messages on Twitter or something. Dude, I'm sorry. If, like, you're on the side of that kind of censorship, come on. Right. Yeah. But I will say, in the interest of fair time, if you were a member of the Board of Trustees in 1935, we'd love to hear from you. 
please get in touch. So if you enjoyed this, and my God, who wouldn't enjoy this? Um, you can find us on Twitter at UConn Podcast or at Maine underscore old. Uh, I'll try to find some newspaper coverage of the um, the big protest because there, there was a lot. The Daily Campus was against the gag rule, but uh, they were kind of moderate on it. They said the gag rule was not necessary because no one at UConn opposed the military. Oh, my. Which is kind of like, it's not the same as saying, like, this is a terrible idea for academic freedom and for freedom of speech. It's just sort of like, oh, you don't need to tell us that. Right. That's a little. Well, six years later, I think there was a change of opinion. Yes. There certainly was. There certainly was. And you can find me at TJ Breen on Twitter. And and please uh, also check out today.uconn.edu for all the latest uh, happenings at the University of Connecticut. Um, Tyler, what would you like to tell uh, the good people out there? You can find my postings at UConn FASA on Instagram. Um, that's the social media for the Philippine American Student Association at UConn. Julie, how about you? I am at Julie Bartuka on Twitter, and I wanted to wish you all a happy third podcast anniversary. <gasps> that's right. This is around the three-year mark, which that's is right. insane. I can't believe it's been three years. There's no party even, hats. There's no cake. It's flown. I know. We didn't do anything. I didn't get you gifts. Nothing. But, we, but we, I had we, to acknowledge it. We previously had sheet cake in the break room, but obviously we did for our first right. year. We did this year. We don't no have break a break room anymore. We're we're in our own home. It's called the kitchen. Yep. Right. We'll have to consume sheet cake individually in the comfort <laughs> of our homes. Um, Ken, happy podcast anniversary! And what would you like to uh, plug? Well, as usual, you can find my exploits on today.ucon.edu, and then on Saturdays from three to six at ninety-one point seven WHUS. Dot org streaming online, Yukon Sound Alternative. And uh, we have the rebroadcast of this very podcast series at 11 o'clock on Friday mornings at 91.7. Very nice. All right, everyone, thanks for listening, and uh, let's meet back here in two weeks. 